from deep inside your audio device of choice. Deep and cold. It's the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. Max Stasi says he wishes he had done the right thing when he learned about the Houston Astros' sign-stealing scheme. This is a baseball thing. Late in their World Series championship season way back in 2017. The former Astro catcher's new teammates with the Los Angeles Angels also aren't happy with their rivals. As they report to spring training, Stasi apologized for his minor part in the Astros cheating after he was recalled by the club in August 2017. He played in just 14 games that season and didn't participate in the postseason, yet still won a World Series title as part of their roster. You apologize to those around the game, the people that were affected by it, Stasi says. The fans, coaches, especially the kids who look up to us, you're supposed to set an example and do the right thing, and we didn't do that, unquote. I haven't heard about the kids since the, the Clinton administration. Stasi said he was surprised to learn the extent of the Astros schemes when he joined the club late in the season. He was also unaware of any scene-stealing, sign-stealing, I do scene-stealing, by the, not really, in the subsequent seasons, it was wrong, he said. I feel terrible. Another Astros sign-stealing apology, former super utility player Marvin, Marwin Gonzalez issued his apology. I feel regret and am remorseful, he says. He now plays for the Minnesota Twins. He also said it's impossible to know if the Astros would have won the World Series in 2017 without stealing signs. Play it again. The hell? We got all the time in the world. uh, Dateline Minneapolis. Target admits a onesie it carried in some stores misidentified the mascot for the largest university in its home state, Minnesota. The Minneapolis-based retail giant apologized to the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers fans for carrying a maroon onesie with the words Minnesota Badgers. Badgers is the nickname of Big Ten rival Wisconsin. I, I get those two states confused all the time. Dateline Thomas River, New Jersey. Thomas River School District officials are investigating allegations from a student about a teacher's classroom lesson on slavery. We're getting a lot of these... Ladies and gentlemen, District Spokesman Michael Kenny confirmed that Lawrence Cuneo, a social studies teacher at Toms River Intermediate East, is the subject of the student's complaint. Cuneo, the teacher, is also the mayor of nearby Pine Beach. We were recently alerted by a Toms River Intermediate East student of alleged incident that took place at the school regarding a lesson on slavery. Our district is undergoing a further investigation, uh, yeah, thorough investigation into this matter. The lesson allegedly included having students pretending to pick cotton like slaves while Cuneo made sounds like a whip cracking and kicked students. The intent of this lesson was to show how degrading and despicable the institution of slavery was in our history, said the teacher. Slavery existed within our country and the lessons learned, even if uncomfortable, need to be told. At no time was my intention to harm the sensitivities of any student. If this lesson did that, I apologize to those affected. Another school apology. It's a thing. A Washington State High School principal who called former L.A. Laker Kobe Bryant a rapist on her Facebook page on the day he died has resigned. The post, which was deleted an hour later, said, Not gonna lie, seems to me that karma caught up with a rapist today. 
Lisa Secora, now former principal of the high school in Camas, Washington, resigned after being placed on leave. She wrote a, a letter to the parents and students of the school. You may be aware that a copy of a social media post I made on my personal Facebook page is circulating digitally in our community today. I apologize to my staff, and now I apologize to you. I want to apologize for suggesting that a person's death is deserved. It was inappropriate and tasteless. Further, I apologize for the disruption it caused to our learning environment today. My emotions and past experiences got the best of me in that moment. We teach our students that what we share online has permanency. Well, what I wrote was posted on a private Facebook account to people who are my friends and was quickly removed. I acknowledge that private does not always mean private. Unquote the teacher. The teacher just taught us all a big lesson, if we don't know that yet. You know what I'm saying? I think you do. The uh, New Jersey governor, Phil Murphy, apologized to those we failed amid allegations that his 2017 campaign for governor was a toxic place for women to work. This is a thing. The Democratic governor also said his administration will soon unveil new policies to better protect women from harassment in New Jersey politics and government, like keeping, keeping Michael Bloomberg out. And he promised that any fu- future campaign he has will be a part of, will lead the nation in progressive workforce policies and be a model of a respectful workplace. A former top advisor, Julie Bruginski, publicly said his 2017 campaign was, quote, the most toxic workplace environment I've ever seen in 25 years of working on political campaigns. Other women on the campaign made similar complaints. To those we failed in their mission of equality, justice, fairness, and respect for all, I apologize, Governor Murphy said. We must absolutely get better moving forward, and we will. Will we get better, or will we just move forward? A radio station in the Netherlands has been forced to apologize after it played a parody song about coronavirus that encouraged listeners to avoid Chinese food as it might be spreading the disease. Called Prevention is Better Than Chinese, has been played, this tune, at Dutch carnivals and by the artist Tune. Rough translations say the... uh, song appears to contain lyrics that say, we don't need the virus in our country. It's all by, caused by the stinking Chinese people. The radio station, Radio 10, apologized for airing the song. They've since removed the show from their playlist. What was meant as satire and joke appears to be experienced as very painful by many, the radio station said. Apologize for this, do they? And remove the relevant videos from all channels. The DJ who played the song also issued a personal apology, explaining the song should never have been played. De La Mata Visto, Colorado. A man was caught on camera berating a woman because she can't speak English at an Elks Lodge in Monte Vista, southwest of Cannon City near Alamosa, for those of you who know where any of those things are. A woman and her friends were at the Elks Lodge for bingo night. The argument started when she asked the man for a card to play, and a uh, thing ensued. He uh, ends up saying, why don't you get the hell out? I don't have to learn. I live in America. I live in America. I speak English. Uh, the he, uh, uh, well, the Elks organization apologized for the incident. We offer a sincere apology. The vitriolic actions and words of the involved individual are inexcusable, intolerable, and totally unacceptable. 
His behavior is not representative of the Elks organization or its members or their beliefs. That Elk has tendered his resignation, is no longer an officer, and has been discharged from the bingo committee. Ouch. I mean, ouch. The person at whom those hurtful words and actions were directed was personally apologized to that evening. An apology was also made to everyone in attendance. What about the Elks who weren't there? The absent Elks. An investigation launched Monday after a Nazi flag was found hanging in a classroom window in a Maryland public high school. Resulted in an apology. School officials responded to the incident. The principal, Daniel Lippi, right, wrote an email. We immediately responded to the concern, removed the flag. There was a lesson involving World War II. The flag was left hanging after the lesson was over. We pride ourselves on accepting all members of our society. This message is central to we who are patriots. The flag should have been taken down after the lesson, and it was very poor taste to have been left up in a window. I know it will be used as a learning lesson for staff and students. I apologize on behalf of the school for it happening. And soccer star Dele Ali has apologized for a video he posted on Snapchat about the coronavirus outbreak, about which much more in a moment. The Tottenham Hotspur midfielder deleted the video in which he filmed himself wearing a face mask and appeared to mock an Asian man. I just wanted to apologize on my behalf. Who better? For the video I posted, it wasn't funny, and I realized that immediately and took it down. He's 23 years old, ladies and gentlemen. I let myself down and the club. I don't want you guys to have that impression of me because it wasn't funny, and I realized that straight away and took it down. It isn't something that should be joked about. I'm sending all my love and all my thoughts and prayers with everyone in China. Please come see our games when we play there. He didn't say that, but I think that's what he meant. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Hello, welcome to the show.
This is the show, and we are now in the, uh, who's counting, fourth, fifth, seventh week of um, news about a virus, the novel coronavirus, uh, which, as far as we know, jumped to humans in China and is now scaring the uh, pants off of many countries in the world, China chief among them, uh, but not to exclude the United States, because we'll jump at anything. And uh, to kind of clear the air a little bit on this subject, I've invited a guest who uh, is no stranger to this program and these microphones. He was last on this program when he was the head of the New Orleans, East New Orleans Levy Board, Levy Authority, sorry. Whatever. We don't want to be bored. We want to be authoritative. Uh, who was in the process of suing 97 uh, petroleum companies and petroleum service industry companies uh, for their lack of due diligence in uh, complying with contracts which com required them to clean up after their pipeline and canal uh, construction in the wetlands surrounding New Orleans, which they did not do. Um, he was eased out of that position by, here's a name from the past, <laughs> former Republican governor of Louisiana, Bobby Jindal, who is uh, hoping to catch light bulbs in a bottle for a presidential campaign. In any case, he is... Uh, the only non-scientist member to have served on an advisory board on endemic or pandemic diseases for two presidents. Uh, he's on the faculty at Tulane, an uh, adjunct professor of public health. And uh, as I say, he's a friend of this program, John Barry. John, welcome. Uh, thanks for uh, having me back. And also author of the book, The Great Epidemic, The Great Influenza, about the epidemic of 1918. Correct. As well as Rising Tide, the... Uh, iconic and authoritative book about the 1927 Mississippi River flood. Having dispensed with your uh, credentials, you sent out an email to uh, some folks yeah. uh, explicating your thoughts a couple weeks ago on the state of this uh, virus, the novel coronavirus. Right. Yeah. So let's start with some of the facts that you uh, laid out. Uh, like, how do we measure the power of this thing without having experienced it yet? Okay, uh, first, I was actually, the, the email was an unedited version of a op-ed that ran in the Washington Post mm. a couple of weeks ago. Um, and what I was trying to do was provide some context to look at the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, so anybody who wants to go to the Washington Post, uh, you certainly find it online. You know, my name, coronavirus, will pull it right up, one hopes. And I was comparing it to, there were two other coronaviruses that have invaded the human population, having jumped from, from animals in the uh, past couple of decades. Uh, the first was SARS. Um, or to give further background, is probably everybody already knows by now, if you follow the news at all, coronaviruses are also one of the main causes of uh, the common cold. So they're not necessarily uh, deadly whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, but SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome, uh, did jump from bats to humans in 2002. That would be bats uh, biting humans? No, uh, probably passed through, or may have, it's not clear, uh, may have passed through an animal uh, called a civet that... that uh, was sold in in Chinese markets. 
and for eating correct for they, eating they eat civets people eat a lot of strange things <laughs> i know <laughs> anyway sars killed about 10 to 15 percent of the people who were infected uh, that was completely contained and essentially eliminated from the human population although there have been a few isolated cases in the last few years that was pretty relatively easily eliminated it was quite scary for for, for a time mm -hmm. and it might well have erupted into a full-scale pandemic but the key was that people were most infectious when they were most sick mm -hmm. so you were not walking around and infecting people if you were contagious you were already flat on your back unable to move so it was most, a self-limiting disease then to a certain extent yeah and most of the by an overwhelming majority of the cases were actually it was most, a self-limiting disease then to a certain extent yeah and most of the by an overwhelming majority of the cases were actually contracted in hospitals and and, and largely among healthcare workers mm -hmm. so, and there was a relatively long incubation period so that made it containable mm -hmm. and it was in fact contained uh, although it seemed like a close call at the minute and then about seven years ago another coronavirus called the middle east respiratory syndrome MERS. which kills right mers which kills approximately 40 percent of those people infected which would be very scary mm -hmm. uh, that erupted in in the middle east uh that's actually a camel virus and that is somewhat similar and most of the cases it is not spread to the to the general population it, it wasn't that easy to catch it needed you needed fairly close contact and most of those cases have also been in hospital situations the spread of the disease or a lot of them anyway so that has not been eliminated it still circulates but it does not seem to be a threat to cause a widespread pandemic Unless you get too close to your camel. Yeah, th that'll do it. But this one is, is a little bit more scary. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, it has nothing like the case fatality rate of either SARS or MERS. Uh, we don't really know what the case fatality rate is because we have no idea how many people really are f infected with it. They, they have reported about 40,000 cases uh, worldwide, almost all of them in China, although it has been in, in I think, 24 countries now. Uh, including U.S., Canada, and so forth. Great Britain, I think. Yes. Uh, most of the European countries. Yeah. And it is potentially scary. Uh, they, What we do know is that the people in the hospital die roughly, the people who are sick enough to be hospitalized, because a lot of them do have very uh, minor outbreaks of the disease, you know, similar to the common cold. Uh, but those who are sick enough to get hospitalized roughly 10 to 15 percent of them die and if you want to compare that to influenza uh that's roughly double the case fatality rate of influenza people who are sick enough to get hospitalized mm -hmm. uh the other thing uh the epidemiologists refer to what they call the r naught which is a, the reproductive number uh how many people are infected by one person this disease seems to have a reproductive number in our naught of 2.2 .2, 
which is very, very, very high. Uh, seasonal influenza, mm-hmm. which is, is generally considered about 1.28, so about 1.3. And seasonal influenza can easily uh, sicken between 10% and 20% of population any given year uh, with a, a reproductive number of as low as 1.3 compared to 2.2. In 1918, a pandemic that killed between 50 and 100 million people in a world population that is only one quarter of today's. Wait a say that say that number again? The 1918 influenza pandemic killed between 50 and 100 million people. And if you adjust for population, that would be between 225 million and 450 million people today who are more than four times the size population-wise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most of them died within about 14-week period. But that reproductive number was 1.8. Wow. The current coronavirus outbreak is higher than that. As scary as that sounds, the reproductive number for SARS was also well over 2. Mm. And, and MERS was also pretty high. And both of the and SARS was essentially eliminated and, and MERS is controlled. So that's not the only thing in play here. But it is scary. It's it's difficult to see how this disease will be controlled. As, as I understand it from your your the piece you wrote, one of the differences is that it is infectious before it's symptomatic. Do I have that right? Um, influenza is generally considered to you can you can be infected yourself and pass the disease to somebody else before you have any symptoms whatsoever, so you have no idea that you're sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese seem to think that that is also the case with the coronavirus. I don't know that that's been absolutely established scientifically yet, mm. uh, although there is evidence supporting that hypothesis. I also know some people who who don't think that's the case or that if it is the case, it is you know, possible but uncommon. That, of course, makes it that much more scary. Yeah. So the Chinese are doing things that would be absolutely impossible in a free society. Closing down entire cities, for example. And not just that. They are literally, there are instances where they put a chain and a lock on the outside of somebody's door. (laughs) So they cannot get out of the house. So if if there's a fire... They're done. They they die. Yeah. Uh, you could impose a quarantine in a free society, but you couldn't do anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's also the case of the doctor who uh, correct first yeah. reported uh, right signs of the disease who was uh, censured by the Chinese government. Right, and he has up- had to essentially confess to uh, spreading rumors, and he got the disease and died, and created all sorts of. Uh, right now a tremendous uh, uproar in Chinese society yeah. uh, SARS became very dangerous as a threat to cause a pandemic because the Chinese government essentially hit it for four or five months I mean the first case was November 2002 and the first you heard of it publicly was February or March 2003 where there are already over 300 cases uh, and they were not forthcoming whatsoever with facts about the disease until the the outbreak was well underway. They learned a lot, one thought. And in <laughs> terms of the actual scientists, hmm. they have been 
quote, transparent, unquote. They uh, have been, you know, very prompt in getting uh, virus samples and the genome out there so that other scientists around the world could learn about the disease. We've already got a possible uh, antiviral drug that is being tested. We bought, and this is extraordinary. Is this fast? Is We've that under is that got, under government auspices or private? Well, it's it's a company called Gilead. Oh, yeah. And uh, okay. California Biotech. That's not the only candidate. There are also vaccine candidates that are already ready for testing. So, in terms of communicating scientifically. The Chinese have been, I think, quite good uh, in terms of their bureaucracy and other parts of the government. They have have not been so good. As you mentioned a minute ago, Chinese doctor who died last week, uh, who tried to warn colleagues about it, got himself in serious trouble for telling the truth. You know, just to take a moment on that, uh, it's bizarre to me that an authoritarian government with the economic ambitions of China would not want to be showing off how great they are at finding, discovering, and finding cures or vaccines or other ways to ameliorate such a threat, as opposed to pretending it doesn't exist, which makes them look stupid. Well, <laughs> you know, bureaucrats, their first instinct is CYA. Yeah. And everything's fine. Yeah. I think now we're up to maybe half a dozen different explanations for how this jumped to humans. The original one, I think, was at a seafood market. And then I've heard other, there's a, another animal that's been blamed uh, for right, being an intermediary right. from bats. But what is the one? Oh, yeah. yeah. Neither, like, neither well, of us. Uh, I had never heard a Lepankin or something. Yeah, something like that. Uh, anyway, but it was supposed to be an intermediary from bats to us, right? So do we know for a fact how this jumped? No, not yet. Not to my knowledge. Uh, do, know, do we get closer to knowing the longer the time passes? I, I don't know that it'll ever be absolutely definitive, but you can be pretty sure. There, there's still a, a little bit of controversy, not a lot, about SARS. Hmm. Uh, you know, most of the viruses that cause pandemics by definition jump from another species mm -hmm. uh if you're going to cause a pandemic almost by definition that means that the human population has not seen this pathogen before mm -hmm. so okay. therefore the immune system is is not prepared to deal with it mm -hmm. you know that's why influenza is so dangerous because there are reservoir and it, influenza infects almost every mammal mm. uh, and the natural reservoir for influenza is birds uh, the 1918 virus may have jumped directly for there are eight genes in the influenza virus it's clear seven of them were of very recent avian or origin uh, it still may have passed through a mammal very possibly a pig uh, in, in 2009, of course, we had the swine flu mm -hmm. pandemic that sort of wasn't because it was quite mild, but it looked scary for a minute. Uh, scientifically, there's no reason that the next influenza pandemic, and there will be another one, you know, no reason that it would be either more mild or, or 
you know, lethal like 1918. But going back to China, for example, for a second, in 2009, when we did have an influenza pandemic, although a mild one, the Chinese health minister said, this is a foreign disease and we are going to keep it out of China. Now, that was a ridiculous statement and a, a goal that was absolutely impossible to accomplish because of the nature of that virus. Again, e even, even in an authoritarian society, even if it were much more so than China is, you know, that wouldn't have been possible. Um, the steps they are taking today to try to contain the coronavirus are absolutely extreme. As I said earlier, mm -hmm. they would not be possible in anywhere in the West. And I don't know how good their numbers are. I think most people believe that their numbers understate it, not so much that they're lying, but they're not testing. I mean, for one thing, they have a great shortage of test kits. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Which are made in China, right? <laughs> probably. I mean, so many, uh, that's part of the potential problem that faces us from this disease and not just us, but the world economy. Uh, first, in terms of healthcare, well over 90% of the antibiotics that we use in American hospitals come from China or India, and even the ones that come from India, the raw materials for them usually come from China. Mm. Practically 100% of the hypodermic needles, the surgical gloves, the surgical gowns, the mask, all those things come from China. So if you have, right, right now, that much of that, well, it's a big country, so roughly 50 million people have been shut down. But if you start having supply chain interruptions, and we're on the verge of that, and I noticed that Hyundai has already shut down one of its, its automobile production factories mm -hmm. because of supply chain problems. But if we start having serious supply chain problems, then the immediate healthcare uh, for many other diseases becomes threatened. Mm -hmm. But beyond healthcare alone, perhaps we don't have the same percentage of Chinese goods in some other industries, but you, you do have supply chain interruptions mm -hmm. and, and everything shuts down. And the world could take a very significant economic hit. And SARS, uh, SARS took 1% off the GDP of China, pretty ah. significant amount. You're saying this virus could hurt the re-election chances of Donald Trump, <laughs> aren't you? Um, the uh, the steps that countries are taking. I will, regarding yes. as you may know, the National Security Council. You probably do know uh, the National Security Council used to have a global health unit, mm. which looked at things like pandemics and health threats, uh, and it was really one of the best units in the world that looked at these issues and of course trump eliminated that unit from the national security council got rid of the disease just just gone um the steps that countries are taking the steps that individuals are taking cutting off flights to china um this seems to reflect the opinion that while well, looking at 1918 that killed all those millions of people without the interconnected global society that we have today. So one can just imagine, you know, viruses hopping all these flights, many more than, there were, none existed at that point. Mm -hmm. 
hiding in packages, hiding in cargo, not it, not necessarily even being carried by humans uh, on the flight. Um, is this a sane response? Well, it depends on the disease. If this were influenza, it would not be a sane response. This disease is very strange because in the United States, you know, we have at this point 12 cases. And one would have expected a disease that was had an R naught of 2.2 to have infected significantly more people than that. It may well have. Uh, I know uh, some, you know, very highly regarded public health people who are convinced that there are many more cases in the United States, but people are not being tested for them. How, how are doctors supposed to know when well, somebody presents? That's, with... that's exactly the point, that if you walk into a doctor's office with the symptoms of a common cold, they're not going to test you for a coronavirus unless you have some history of a contact with, uh, with China or a person who's been to China. So you might be walking around with that. Um, that may very well be the case. Mm-hmm. Obviously, however, if you were to come down with a severe case in viral pneumonia, then people would run a test, and so far that has not happened. That, uh, is, that is how you would know that you had it for sure if you came down with pneumonia? I mean, I'm well, talking about somebody who's well, 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 a hypochondriac. That, so let's say there's a hypochondriac, and they start sniffling. When, how do they know when? Well, they, they wouldn't know unless they insisted upon a test for the coronavirus. The, the, this particular virus infects both the lower respiratory tract, which means lungs, and the upper respiratory tract. And there was initially some, some controversy over whether it infected the upper respiratory tract at all. Hmm. I think the evidence right now suggests that it does. But it was primarily seems to have been a lower respiratory tract virus. But if you've got common cold symptoms, that's all upper respiratory mm-hmm. tract. SARS infected the lower respiratory tract. So essentially, if you got a severe disease, I mean, you were starting out with viral pneumonia. If you if you looked at an X-ray, it was a whiteout. There was like nothing that you could see except mm. the highly congested lung. That was exactly like the lungs in. 1918 mm-hmm. from from influenza uh, you know we we really at this point still don't know what's going on in this country you know as i said in that op-ed and i emailed you in a unedited version of the op-ed you know there were some space considerations as there always are mm-hmm. so they they cut some stuff out of it it's it's very puzzling that you have a reproductive number of over two, and you've got 12 cases in the United States. And, Do we know when the first case was identified? I mean, it was, it was fairly soon after, but it was somebody. So who some time was, has passed. Yeah. Enough yeah. time that it, it by that number should yeah. have. Yeah. Uh, going back to your original question, does it make sense mm-hmm. in terms of suspending flights and things like that for this disease? And it seems to, yeah. There's no question that that China has made progress in the sense of dramatically slowing the spread of this disease. That is still a long, long way from being in a position to say that they can control it. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't think it 
can be controlled. I think eventually it'll escape and and probably become endemic. I don't think that it's the end of the world. I think it's you know will be like another influenza season. Uh, influenza is not so nice. People are so used to it that they are you know, likely to take it for granted, but influenza is a serious disease. How many does it kill in this country? Well, it varies quite a bit depending on how virulent the virus Mm -hmm. gets because the virus mutates, changes every year. How many people get vaccinated, how effective the vaccine is. Uh, The effectiveness of influenza vaccines have ranged from a best of 62% down to a low of 10%. And, uh, you know, that's not great for a vaccine. Some <laughs> vaccines are almost 100% effective. Mm-hmm. Anyway, according to the CDC, influenza kills anywhere from a low of about 3,000 Americans a year to a high two years ago of 61,000 Americans. That's more than double traffic deaths. It's, I don't know about the traffic deaths, but I'll take your word it's for that. very close to that, yeah. Okay, and, you know, that's a lot of people. So yeah. if you have a new disease that is going to add a similar health burden, that's serious let me ask you this you mentioned this this peculiarity at least it's peculiar to me of this annual mutating of the influenza virus and our attempt to predict which which way it's going to mutate Mm -hmm. so we can get a proper vaccine what if this virus mutates well i mean that's another question you know it it's it does mutate yeah uh the question is are the parts of the virus that the immune system recognizes, mm-hmm. do they mutate? Mm-hmm. You know, and measles and influenza are actually, they're both RNA viruses. RNA is, is coronaviruses. RNA, RNA virus mutates much more quickly than DNA viruses. But measles and influenza mutate at the same rate. Mm. However, if you have one exposure to measles or a vaccination, you are immune for life. From any mutation of Correct. that virus. And the reason is the parts of the measles virus that mutate are not necessarily recognized by the immune system. The parts, the, the measles virus that don't mutate, they can't change. They're the, the conserved portions of the viruses, the technical phrase, conserved portions of the virus. If they change, the virus won't function. Mm give you a sense of how rapidly and and that's the opposite in an in influenza and in influenza the parts of the virus that the immune system recognizes are not really that important to the continued existence and functioning of the virus so they mutate and you know if if a single influenza virus infects a single cell generally between 6 and 12 hours later that one cell will expel anywhere between 100,000 and a million new virus particles. Every one of them is different. And 99% of those new virus particles can't function. They are incapable of infecting another virus and Mm. propagating. But that still leaves 1%, somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 viruses that can. But they're they're all different. As As I said, the conserved portions of the virus... You know, if they change, which is what happens to 99% of the influenza virus particles that are produced, the virus can't function. So I I don't know if it's been resolved whether the parts of the coronavirus that do mutate 
are recognized by the immune system or not. When you talked about the speed with which uh, vaccine development is progressing. I should know that answer, incidentally. <laughs> no, I apologize right. for not knowing You'd it. be graded on a curve. Um, when you talk about the speed with which uh, vaccine development is proceeding, is that somehow related to the fact that this is part of a family of viruses we've had experience with? Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, certainly SARS and MERS, there are people that are have looked at vaccine development for them. You know, there's no money in it because SARS has been largely eliminated. MERS does not seem to be a major threat, but the fact that it does mutate, you know, people have, have studied it. They've studied SARS. Um, there are relations between these different things. So, yeah, there, it, there is a certain amount of, of work and infrastructure that exists that could be applied to this one. I was talking, we were talking a moment ago about the sanity of uh, interrupting or canceling, cutting off air travel between countries or among countries to deal with this. On the individual level, there's a, I read different things all the time about the steps that individuals can take. Uh, do face masks work at all? Okay. Let me go back to the, to the plane stuff, yeah. to canceling flights and things like that. Because of the extreme measures that China is taking, then that helps make sense for not flying to China uh, or canceling the flights and so forth. You know, with influenza, it wouldn't work. Um, and if China was not taking these extreme measures, then it probably wouldn't work as well. Um, you even mentioned things like cargo. I mean, there's mm -hmm. evidence. I just saw an, a scientific article today that uh, the coronavirus may survive outside the body on a hard surface for as long as nine days. So that's, that's a long time, which actually is a good segue into your last question about what you do to protect yourself. Hand washing is a good one. You know, if someone coughs, covers their mouth with their hand, opens a door, and you come along two days later and the virus is on the doorknob, you open the door and then you rub your eyes or yawn and cover your mouth, then you have just potentially infected yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's why hand washing is considered not only for this virus, but you know for many things, and particularly in the cold season, when, when you get colds, influenza, and other diseases, respiratory diseases, uh, hand washing is a very, very important measure to take to protect yourself. Masks are much more controversial. Even going back to 1918, they ran tests. And the scientists in 1918 were first-rate scientists, even though they didn't even know what a virus was at that time. Hmm. But they discovered in 1918 that if someone is sick and you put a mask on the person who is sick, that will, in fact protect people who are well it's not a complete protection but it will be still reasonably effective and well worth doing that's certainly the case today whether it's whether it's this coronavirus or some other respiratory disease putting a mask on someone who is sick will be very helpful uh, in terms of a well person you know there are people who believe in them that sounds a little theological. Well, you know, <laughs> if you had someone else 
as a guest who happened to think that they were a good thing, they could probably be fairly articulate and make a good case for it. I'm not one of those people. You know, they they will stop a large droplet. Mm -hmm. But then you have that, you know, they had to fit properly. When you take them off, you have to be extremely careful because they'll collect all sorts of nasty things. So taking them off is is actually one of the most dangerous things. You, you're you can, implying you, you need do. gloves to take them off with. So, then, yeah, frankly, yeah. <laughs> uh, or you know, you know, certainly very careful hand washing after you take yeah, a mask off. Yeah. It and it varies from disease to disease. For influenza, I think wearing a mask to protect yourself is probably useless. I think most influenza is transmitted through aerosol transmission. Aerosol is sort of a term of art that means the particles are so small they will float in the air continuously. They will never fall out of the air as opposed to a droplet, uh, which is big enough and heavy enough that it will, you know, someone will cough or sneeze and it'll go out in the air, but then it'll fall to the ground. Aerosol is very small. And, and so they can get through a mask, theoretically. Yeah, so, uh, certainly a surgical mask. Mm -hmm. And there is uh, another kind of mask for in a so-called N95 mask, mm -hmm. which is essentially a respirator. Yeah. Those things have to be fitted very carefully to work. And they're um, ugly. They're, they're, they're also uncomfortable. You know, we're taping this in New Orleans. Both of us live in New Orleans. Uh, after Katrina, professionals who went into areas where they feared toxic mold mm -hmm. were wearing N95s to protect themselves from the toxic mold. And there were studies that these professionals who were supposed to know what they were doing, uh, well over 60% of them did not put the N95 on properly or didn't wear it properly, became uncomfortable, they moved it and so forth, so it had no effect. So, um, you know, the surgical mask for influenza, I, I don't think is particularly useful unless somebody's sick again and you put it on the sick person n95 if you wear it properly it will give you protection they're expensive too right when they're not incredibly expensive like 200 bucks no they're not not oh. anything like that hmm. uh but you i'll send you one for 200 bucks <laughs> but you need uh you need a lot of them because you can't just keep wearing them over and over ah yeah a less uh, news you can use kind of question there is, we know, a season for influenza. It's colder weather, and supposedly the, the viruses don't do as well in warm weather, which is why you don't have flu epidemics during the summer. Do we know if this coronavirus is uh, similarly seasonal? Uh, I don't know. Hmm. We'll find out, obviously. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you can't get influenza in the summer. Mm -hmm. But you go to Australia. <laughs> Well, going back to 1918, first there was a spring wave, which was actually relatively mild. The virus seemed to get more dangerous as time passed. Mm. Uh, and the first really lethal outbreak was in July and early August in Switzerland. Wow. And in fact, it was so lethal, according to uh, U.S. Uh, military intelligence reports from Switzerland, it wasn't actually influenza. It was the bubonic plague of the Middle Ages, although, of course, it was influenza. But so that seasonality, certainly influenza tends to be in the winter for the, you know, people are inside. So they're closer together. Mm -hmm. uh, they're kissing each other at holiday time. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and. 
you know, as you said, the virus will survive longer in low humidity and colder temperatures, but that doesn't mean that it dies instantly in higher humidity and warmer temperatures. Uh, it just won't survive as long. So I've seen I've seen in print predictions that this thing, whatever scale it, it reaches in the next couple of months, should abate by April. You would not give credence. We to that. don't know anything, but I, I I would say there are too many unknowns. Okay. So a, a person living in the continental United States who is not flying to China, but may fly to Britain or Canada or other more likely or more common destinations. Is there reason for that person to be no. fearful? No. No. Okay. You know, we, we will know when there's a time to be concerned. And again, at this point, even if it were to become what, frankly, I probably expect, a, a, I, th I think it will become a full-scale pandemic eventually. Uh, Meaning it escapes Chinese confinement. Yeah. It's like a severe influenza mm -hmm. outbreak, which is not nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, as I said, in the United States alone in a bad year, which was two years ago, 61,000 Americans died. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But it, it is not going to wipe out civilization either. <laughs> well, we could hope. No, I mean... I'm I'm a little I'm a little cynical about the subject of civilization well, right now. That's all a rel that's a relative term. You know that that uh, mm -hmm. uh, apocryphal quote uh, attributed to Gandhi, right? He was asked, "What do you think about Western civilization?" He said, "I think it would be a good idea." Yeah. Uh, well, that's re that's reassuring, I guess, for most mm -hmm. folks that it, that uh, they can tamp the fear down to a low flame at this point. Yeah. Um, do you think from what you know, both from your work inside and outside the government, that the Centers for Disease Control is at this point a reliable source of information on yes. where this is going? Yes. Most reliable? Oh, easily. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. All right, so we'll pay attention to them. Yeah, and you know, WHO has a more political game. You know, they're a, a unit of the United Nations. I'm not sure everybody realizes they're essentially part of the United Nations. Mm -hmm. uh, the head of the WHO is praised China. I know a lot of people who think that that praise has been overstated. They have to keep working with them. You know, the WHO and CDC offered the Chinese help from WHO and CDC scientists some time ago. The Chinese very recently, only a couple of days, weeks after it was offered, said they'd accept WHO help. That's, you know, you have the two levels of the Chinese. You have the scientists on the ground who have been transparent and have mm -hmm. done, I think, a first-rate job. And then you have the bureaucracy that doesn't want to admit any error still or that they need any help. You know, just as earlier I quoted the Chinese health minister a decade ago saying that 2009 H1N1 was a foreign disease and we keep it out of China. That's mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately still a little bit of their their attitude toward the rest of the world, cover their ass and so forth and so on. We don't need any help. We can handle it. There's a lot of pressure on, on them politically now, fortunately. Uh, you know, you mentioned the death of the doctor who tried to 
warn mm-hmm. of of the disease. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how far this goes in China politically. It it, it could be like one of the big snowstorms in New York City, which you know can was good at destroying the political ambitions of certain mayors in the past mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not just new york mm-hmm. there's there's yeah. a lot of towns That's where right. not getting the the snow plows out has uh, short-circuited a mayor's career uh one last sort of sci-fi question okay. and i'm not a fan of sci-fi um but will uh the era of these kinds of illnesses just beginning migrating mm-hmm. oh, just beginning really mm-hmm. yes I was going to say, uh, w- will our sometimes predicted transition to uh, lab-grown food interrupt the, the process of stuff jumping from live animals to humans? Well, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't considered that one. But I think the uh, humans are entering environments that they didn't used to live in. Well, they give us dominion. And we're taking it. Yeah. And that is in that and climate change uh, are exposing populations to either diseases that didn't used to be a threat in certain areas of the world, like dengue, which will probably show up in the United States in fuller force Mm. as temperatures rise and entirely new diseases. There was this hypothesis, in fact, that smallpox entered the human population, or actually it's a human virus, but it came from a cowpox-like virus that that infected a lot of mammals, but that that was climate-related mm. uh, about 3,500, years ago. There, there was a climate change then, actually, a huge volcanic explosion. Anyway, it, it, it shifted things around and, you know, that cowpox-like virus entered the human population and uh, and mutated into the lethal smallpox virus that we, you know, fortunately managed to get rid of about forty With years huge, ago. Huge effort and expense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I w- I'm so grateful for you spending this time, and I want to end the conversation by declaring that the name of the animal we were trying to think of was pangolin. Uh. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm you glad noticed it, I wasn't looking it up. Did, there was no use of Google. I had my <laughs> phone here and I was tempted just, to look it up, but I, I've been uh, sitting here <laughs> focused on you. Tom Berry, thank you very much for uh, spending this time and, and informing us and tamping down the fear, perhaps a little bit. Or not. Or not. <laughs> Thanks. You're very welcome. Good to see you again. You too.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next time, next week, at this same time, or next time at this same week on uh, this radio station and on your audio device of choice, any week, any time, any universe. And it'll be just like Stan Well, if you'd agree to be with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, to Garrett Pittman here at WWNO New Orleans, and to Graham Robinson at Storyville Sound here in New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, you can email me. I'll read it. Your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts and the playlists of the music you're here on, all at harryshearer.com, and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City. Happy Carnival. <laughs>